I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of December's book Vagabonds by Hao Ying Fang. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far that I've noticed but be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas of future episodes so please leave a comment or start the conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of Vagabonds from medal on page 332 to the end. There are a few questions I had at the end of the last podcast. The first was, will Lu Ying find out exactly why she was sent to Earth? And the question, what did Dvosky do on Earth to build the archive? And why doesn't Leung just question her grandfather outright? Why did you send my parents away to the mining colony to get killed, ultimately? Now, Leung's mother received a teacher the year Leung was born. And who is this teacher? And will Earth and Mars end up making sweet love, not war? For that matter, will Eco and Leung? I'm pretty certain of it. What do you think? And why is Rainey such an important figure? Is Dr. Rainey going to end up doing something horrible to Lu Ying? And what is the matter of the engineering Rainey helped hand Sloan with? And will Lu Yong learn what real freedom is? I'd also like to know why she loves her grandfather so much when she knows he was responsible for her loving parents' deaths. And was Lu Ying's injury an accident or not? And will she discover about her parents and hands in the files of the registry? And ultimately, will there be a revolution on Mars? So a lot of questions to come out of that first half. So let's just quickly run through the second half. Lu Ying goes to the registry run by Uncle Lark. Uh, she's given access by Rainey, who has all sorts of powers to allow registry access. She wants to get information ultimately about her grandfather, Hans, and whether he sentenced her parents to death and exactly why. She learns... Hans's mother died in an air crash on Mars due to a legal dispute that delayed the rescue operation. And Hans's father, Richard, killed the president of the rescue company. In short, Hans's mother died due to crass and avert capitalism that was rampant on early Mars. He goes on to form a rebellion against this capitalist society that creates the current Mars government. Now, Lu Ying learns that Rainey was punished for a design fault in a mining vehicle which had an accident. Dun, dun, dun. Does this mean Rainey is responsible for Lu Ying's parents' death? They were killed in a mining accident. Could it be the same accident? Or were mining accidents very common on Mars? Let's see. Now, Lu Ying starts rehearsals of a play with her rebellious friends, which will be part of the peaceful rebellion. So it's going to be a rebellion play, rather like the play in Shakespeare's Hamlet. It will show up the guilt of the top leaders. She learns that the Mercury Group was actually a hostage group to ensure the, quote, peaceful delivery of cargo. The idea of studying on Earth was simply a cover. And she also learns that her grandfather wanted her to go to, quote, reassure the other parents so they wouldn't see the risks. So there was a reason question answered, tick. They were hostages. Now Lu Ying submits a rock to the creativity fair, quote, the teachers looked at one another as did the other youths in the hall. Among the colourful complicated structures, robots and art pieces, the rock was so primitive and clumsy that it seemed an insult. 
it did not fit. The other project seemed to inch away from it the way a crowd cleared out the space around a criminal suspect. But ultimately, one of the judges says, quote, it's a reminder to us all not to be limited to only high technology in our creativity. Let the rebellion begin, Lu Ying. Reminds me of Marcel Duchamp's found art a little bit. I don't know whether you were reminded of that. Now we also have a few more moments of ekphrasis. Now that's that description of a work of art. As Lu Ying describes her favourite work of art, a globe within a globe. Quote, it was a large, thin-shelled, hollow glass globe in which was suspended a slightly smaller glass globe and another one inside that until it was impossible to see the smallest innermost globes. The inner surface of each shell was carved with different features, land, houses, slides, factories. And in the outermost layer, if one looked closely, it was possible to see tiny humans in the middle of all kinds of activities, their feet firmly planted against the glass, their heads pointing to the centre of the concentric globes. The whole sphere had been hung high up so that the layers of different worlds shone through the almost invisible glass, a multi-layer projection that was eye-catching. Lu Ying had no idea how it had been made. She spent a long time gazing up at the crystalline spheres, gazing through the infinite recursion of the concentric shells, gazing at the different scaled but self-similar worlds, gazing at the outermost layer as though seeing the upturned dome of heaven from outside, until she felt she had also been turned upside down, inside out, tossed into the depths of the infinite cosmos. That's almost the opposite of Rainey's word blocks. Do you remember those word blocks? Those curved glass shapes instead of ridges, straight line blocks and images instead of words? Now you could argue that it's also the anti-Babel Tower, a structure based on an internal nesting, rather maternal in feel, and painted with images, not words, unlike the, quote, reaching for the stars and, quote, goal-oriented, achievement-based thrusting upward towards, with its associations with masculinity and patriarchy. Or am I taking that too far? What do you think? Maybe. In a nod to Luing's minimalist artwork idea, Sorin and Myra, who's a friend, uh, the, who are friends of Luing, tried to create an aeroplane from scratch, quote, starting with air, in order to visit the site of Luying's great-grandfather's crash. Now I'm thinking they're keen to get back to first principles here. That feeling is that science upon science or technology built upon technology has rendered the original form lost. They don't want to strip things back, but to start again from first principles in order to assert the humanity of objects and tools. Does that make sense? What do you think? Anyway, continuing that idea, they go to an insect farm in order to get ideas on how to develop this simpler style of aircraft. Now, after the Great Grandfather Rebellion, the, quote, central archive, was set up to allow ideas and inventions to be shared freely with no cost to anyone. Then we have this scene where Luyong dances, and as she does, she lights upon a key design requirement that they're struggling with, which is how to control the wings of the stripped-down aircraft that they're building. Quote, to control the wings, perhaps they didn't need the brain, only the instincts of the body. They put on their play, which exposes the difficulties of capitalism and intellectual property. The main protagonist in the play is ultimately saved by the net that protects him as he falls to earth. It transpires that he was always enmeshed in this net. And I'm reminded here of Blake's mind-forged manacles, if you've ever read Blake poetry. 
These shackles ultimately saved him, but then there is a big fight between two factions, black and white, on either side of him, pro-capitalist and anti-capitalist, I assume. Both sides toss the protagonist onto scales, weighing up the pros and cons of capitalism, communism, and the scales balance out and the two leaders of each side, quote, slap each other on the shoulders and exchange two huge bags of gold. So ultimately, no side is a winner, just those in authority or control. Then the play fizzles out and we go to the aircraft where Lu Yong's friends are taking it for a flight. Now, Uncle Juan, who is the archon of flight systems, notices something uncanny about the ship though. He calls Hans, who decides to watch them. Dun, dun, dun. Is Hans going to stop their reckless, rebellious scheme to investigate the crash site? Let's see. Now, the party atmosphere on the decrepit mining ship is a little like the hedonistic life on Earth, and they drink and discuss revolution. Have a listen. Quote, let's break things, shatter what has ossified. That's Sharnia. And Runge says, quote, we must force everyone to admit the selfish, utilitarian basis for what they do, to pull off the cover of hypocrisy and discard the lies. And then Luang says, are you suggesting that we return to the system on Earth where everything is based on money? And Sharnia answers with, at a minimum, we must make the selfishness transparent. It's unbearable to live with dishonesty and self-deception. They want to get ultimately rid of this atelier system and create a system of housing that is fairer and freer. They eventually get to the site of the crash and they see evidence of an early community of people in the way the caves have been sculpted. And I'm thinking maybe this is wishful thinking, but is it possible that her parents are still alive and they're living in a secret community outside Mar City? I'm very influenced here by Dune, Frank Herbert. That was December's podcast, if you have a listen, where the Fremen were using these caves, sort of hidden community of people. Maybe this is what's happened to her parents. I hope so. I'd really like her to be reunited with her parents. Anyway, they descend from the mining ship with wings on their backs, flying around like insects. Quote, Dexterously, Luyung flew through the air. She squinted and allowed her mind to be filled with visions. She saw herself standing on an endless plain, buffeted by winds from all sides. And the sand that scraped against her skin was accompanied by laughter and joyous voices. In one gust of wind, she saw the smiles of the girls from her dance troupe back on earth, dressed in elaborate jewel-studded costumes and waving at her from the clouds. In another gust, she heard the shouts of the girls who had shared that old house with her, draped in grass-woven outfits and holding ancient shields. With yet another gust, she saw Giel and Brenda sitting on nutshell-shaped kites and painting houses in the air, blushing as they cried in surprise. Lu Ying wanted to stop, to freeze the scenes, but the wind was too fast and soon they were beyond the horizon. She obviously loved Earth. She has such rich and vibrant memories of her friends and her time there. It's a really beautiful quote. But this joy, unfortunately, is soon interrupted by Anchor, noticing a, quote, ground effect vehicle from his squadron. Uh-oh, they've been found out. So Liu Yong and Anchor hide in some cliff tops and await being picked up by the others later. And the narrator notices, quote, the swirling gusts sweeping off the ground filled the air with sand. Loose pebbles rolled along sloping surfaces and sand scraped past their survival suits like streams of refugees escaping war. I hope this isn't a premonition 
of the future. Now they're prevented from being picked up by the main mining ship until tomorrow noon because of the dust storm. Very similar to June here. Anka and Luyang ponder the value of revolution and whether there is a purpose in it. Luyang says, quote, I wish I had such faith in some ideal that would propel me to act. I would feel so much better then. And she thinks of Camus, the French author, quote, Almost 300 years ago, he spoke of facing one's destiny, of rebelling against history, of choosing the faithful land of Ithaca, of the first and last love of earth. Now, as she and Anka watch the sunrise, they notice a pattern in the shadows created by her grandfather, two apples. Quote, both are simply fruits from the same tree, hanging on different branches grown out of the same root. Then she quotes another French author, Saint-Axupéry, I'm just reading The Little Prince with my kids because I've been so inspired by reading about this quote coming up. And it's actually a great book. I'd recommend it. It's a wonderful children's book. Saint Axupri speaks of, quote, the brotherhood of climbers gazing up at the same peak and being tied to the same rope of the eternal love of those who strive to fulfill the same purpose. Maybe a bit of wishful thinking there. Perhaps Hans didn't kill her parents, but save them. He let them live away from Mars City in the second community. Now this whole section, as I say, really reminds me of Dune, the sand, the Fremen, the borders of society. They ultimately find a memorial stone to her great-grandmother, Angela Bluff, who, remember, died in an accident because of capitalism. When they return home, they're rescued by Runge, by the way, Hans Sloan is there to scold them. He grounds them for a month and hands out a punishment to Rainey Quote, reassignment to the registry of files. He also admits that the Mercury group were hostages. Now, the waders are the older conservative Martians, while the climbers represent the ideals of the younger, more progressive Martians. Rudy is painted in this chapter as ambitious and calculating. And then Juan tells him that the Terrans are planning on putting weapons of protection on the moon. He feels really excited, Rudy, about the terraforming plan that will change Mars forever. Now, Rudy clearly likes Shania, or Kania, I'm going to say Shania. She explains how she wants to promote the freedom to transfer housing and atelier affiliations. And on the surface, Rudy seems to like the idea, but I don't trust this ambitious man. Luyong says that Rudy's in love with her, and Shania says that she doesn't believe in love, that it derives from self-interest. Now, you can only get a house if you're married on Mars. A single apartment is for when you are single. That is why there are so few divorces. Quote, on Earth, most people had long since abandoned the institution of marriage, and even on Mars, marriages were not so much driven by tender love as practical economic concerns. Now, they go to the housing registration office to try to get Rainey a bigger place without success. And then a horrifying thing happens. Luying and Shania watch as a patient jumps to his death from the top of the hospital. There'll be more on that later. Now, Luying tells Rainey he should transfer to a different atelier. He says his file is frozen and he can't. And when he says that Mars needs systems and limits, Luying says, quote, Our system has severe flaws. It requires the individual to submit to the system. And those who refuse cannot survive. Those who rebel are imprisoned, perhaps driven mad, until they seek the solace of death. Now, Rainey compares the Martian system like a solid form, whereas the Terran system is more like a liquid. There'll be more on that later. The founders of Mars initially wanted it to be a free government, but because resources were so limited, it became structured and bureaucratic.
Let me hear about Rainy's mother, who was given the choice to return to Earth. So she did, leaving Rainy at three years old. Poor Rainy, left all on his own. He's persuaded to be revolutionary and he goes to Janet at the Tarkovsky Film Institute. And then we moved on to Lu Yang. She recalls seeing a man on Earth fall to his death due to the pressures of capitalism. A little bit of an echo to the man who fell from the hospital. There'll be more on that later. And she has a debate whether to join the revolutionary cause. She recalls Rainey's words that he wanted to be a human being who can face another human being. And she thinks, quote, what about me? She then recalls living in tents in the highlands with people who have rejected city life and have the sentiment, quote, Earth was at first a paradise, but we fell because of unchecked desire. More on that later. She does ultimately decide to join the cause, but weirdly Rudy is there. He must be trying to infiltrate something, unless he's had a major change of heart. Rudy does tell them that they all need to revolt like his parents did and he shows them photos of them in their youth being rebellious. And this shocks Liu Yong and it also shocks me. I thought he was going to be a really horrible character that would be getting in with the government and just wanting everything to stay the same, but seems not. Liu Yong chats with anger and thinks that the love they may have had was maybe an illusion. And we learn that Giel has a big crush on Rudy and has been trying to make him notice her. We also learn that Pierre has a crush on Giel. So we're getting all these relationships later on in the book. I'm thinking, snooze, why set up all these meaningless relationships so late in the novel? It's really beginning to drag a bit, this book, at this stage. She should have wound things up at the exciting flying scene. Discuss. Anyway, Pierre has invented a super light membrane that can reflect the sun rays to allow water to flow on Mars, which is great news. Then we hear about Sorin. He's opposed to demonstration. And when a small demonstration is started, it is escalated. Leung thinks the escalation is caused by Rudy. I guess we will see. Rainey appears to say that Leung's parents were punished for causing a demonstration at the Boule 10 years ago in which a woman died. Now, the Boule is kind of the Senate that is the Mars government. Luying is shocked. She thinks, quote, so it wasn't for giving Dvorsky plans to the Central Archive. She learns that her parents actually caused a change in the housing policy that had been much harsher. She also learns that Hans's hands were tied by the bull, so he's not at all guilty. Hmm. I still think he could have done a little bit more to save his children, though. What do you think? I think it the author or the narrator or the implied author is being a little bit too sympathetic to these dictatorial types in this book, like Hans. Do you agree with me? Now, we learn from Rainey that the man who jumped off the building was called Jenkins and he was the system archon when Rainey's mining accident occurred. Rainey was punished instead of Jenkins who had allowed bad management to occur. Luyong feels guilt that they held up Jenkins as an example of why the revolution should succeed, yet it was Jenkins' incompetence that led to Rainey's ruin. With this new information, Luyong succeeds in calling off the protest. I'm thinking, what a shame. Reform of the system is definitely needed. Don't you think? Anyway, she receives a message from Eco on Earth saying how the idea of a central server is being resisted because of the value of IP, intellectual property. And he is upset that the ideas can't be shared freely by humanity. Lu Young recalls what happiness meant to Rainey. Quote, sobriety and the freedom to be sober. And remember I said that was a bit dull, but I do appreciate that sentiment. You know, 
freedom to do what you want, freedom to drink, freedom not to drink. Now, Rudy gives a talk to the bull about the positives of adopting the policy of the climbers. He also advocates a free market housing scheme. It's a bit of a change, isn't it? Hans takes the podium and resigns a month early. And then Joanne speaks on behalf of the climbers plan. And then Hans speaks again on behalf of the waders plan. He criticizes Joanne's plan that would seek war with earth because of the materials required for the climbers plan. He says, quote, I will not allow war. As long as I'm consul, I won't ever let you go to war. And then Joanne reminds him that he's already resigned. Dun, dun, dun. What melodrama. Now, at the end of their spat, we hear about two hydraulic engineers that were helping Mars with Ceres and getting the water escape on a cargo shuttle. Obviously a little bit scared of imminent war, perhaps. We're led to presume, because they were trying to escape Mars, feeling that war was inevitable, as I say. But I don't know, I don't trust anything at the moment. How do I know they're from Earth? Just because the narrator told me, I don't trust this narrator as far as I can throw him or her. Anyway, Anka secretly tries to rescue the two Terrans. He thinks Joanne doesn't want to rescue them because he's desperate for a spat with Earth that will lead to war. But Anka is keen to try. Anka, Tom Cruise-like, have you seen his latest movie? Climbs into his fighter and attempts a rescue of the two Terran hydraulic engineers. It's a very boring fighter pilot scene. And then it goes on a bit. And why is that there? I don't know. I guess you have to have some words, don't you? Anka ultimately fails. And then Hans learns that Anka died in the rescue attempt and feels regret that he didn't send out an official search party. He thinks, quote, when they told me that the Terrans had escaped, do you know what I thought at that moment? I wasn't thinking of their safety. I was only thinking of what effect they would have and what role they'd play in the negotiations with Earth. I saw them for their utility, not as human beings. Anka should not have died. If we had dispatched rescue ships right away, everyone would have been safe. What were we thinking? We were playing a game of chess. Anka died in my place. He died for a weak, foolish old man's youthful self. I am beyond ashamed. Now, it's interesting how throughout this passage with Hans, the narrator makes every effort to remind us how old Hans is. I must have counted about 10 references to his age. He's constantly referred to as old man. Is the narrator trying to make an association here between age and dogmatism and cowardice? Is there ageism going on? What do you think? Anyway, the climbers win the plebiscite. Quote, the idea of living in an open environment proved an irresistible temptation. And then Hans goes on about his friend Galliman. We, as a reader, have not really seen much Galliman in action. I don't feel I know him that well. I think the author should have fleshed him out more. The author could have had far fewer but more richly described characters. A close-knit coterie like For Whom the Bell Tolls, Hemingway, episode 29. In that book, it's similar in its rebellion and war themes, but we've got such close inner character development and we really see inside the hearts of all the characters. Not in this novel. How am I expected to put up with a two-page eulogy for a character I barely know, Galliman? Rant over. How, Ying Fang? Am I being unfair to you? Anyway, what do you think? Am I being unfair? I probably am being unfair. 
Now, Hans decides to take over the position of commander on the Merv and Leung decides to join him to help foster better relations between Earth and Mars. Lark, spelt L-A-A-K, becomes the Mars console. Ceres is plunged into a crater to give water to Mars and then the book ends with Leung admiring her handsome grandfather as the Merv heads towards Earth. Ta-da! Book over! Very interesting. I felt it was a bit of a letdown towards the end. I really hoped that things will improve for these Martians, but there was no big revolutionary act apart from Anka's sacrifice. Maybe this was the point. The revolutionary act that really brought Mars and Earth close together. Now, questions. Will Liu Ying find out exactly why she was sent to Earth? Yeah, she did. They were hostages. Hans, what were you thinking? We don't really get Liu Ying and Hans having a head-to-head. -head. That could have been a great scene. Liu Ying, Hans. Why did you send my parents away? I didn't mean to. That could have been great. Anyway, we had that question, will Earth and Mars end up making sweet love, not war? And yeah, they did at the end, I think. And for that matter, Eco and Liu Ying, mm, they didn't, did they? That was a bit of a shame. That would be a nice little relationship at the end. Did Liu Young really learn what real freedom is? Will it be based on anyone's society, Earth or Mars? Or will she discover that freedom is a personal inner concept not defined by society? Well, ultimately, I don't think Earth ends up being freer than Mars or Mars ends up being freer than Earth. They've both got their bad sides, haven't they? The matter of engineering that Rainey helped the hand Sloan with was the mining work. And Liu Ying's injury was a, a genuine accident, I think. Now, there was a question which was, what will Liu Ying discover about her parents and hands in the files of the registry? She discovered he did send her revolutionary parents to mining and dimers, but his hands were tied. They could have been killed. In some ways, he did save them. And then we have that big question, will there be a revolution on Mars? Quote, boycotting the creativity fair and stopping all the competitions. There was a revolution, but it was Anka's actions that were revolutionary. Now, overall thoughts. First impressions after finishing the novel. I think that the most valuable thing that I've learned from reading this book is the difficulty in setting up a government in a hostile, desolate, dangerous place like Mars. The government, to a certain extent, was forced to create a very structured and rigorous society in order to survive. It's just a shame that this was taken so fast that it ended up being really a very restrictive society that didn't allow free movement between jobs or a choice of housing. I remember around 15 years ago deciding that I wanted to have a go at being a photographer. I had no training in photography, no degree, no qualifications. In fact, in many other countries around the world, I wouldn't be able to work as a professional photographer, but I did take a few courses, read loads of books, became an apprentice to another photographer, and within a few years, I was taking professional photography jobs. I felt really privileged that I live in a country where I was able to do that. I do feel free in the society I live in, but I'm very aware, just as eco is, that the type of system that I'm living in is something that's to be fought for every day. Messages on my phone are telling me I should buy this or achieve this or I should be happier or I should be sadder about certain situations in the world. And I know that democracy is a very, very fragile system. And just as Rainey feels that true freedom is the 
the choice to be sober, I feel that I am in a way in a very privileged position because I can choose most of the activities that I want to take part in. That constraint the Luying feels must be so oppressive. The idea that she has to sign up for a particular atelier, she has to choose what she wants to be and that's pretty much it. That's her role for life. That must be a very difficult thing to live with. It's interesting that central server that ensures that the sharing of human information is redundant. If the humans on Mars aren't allowed to develop along the paths they want to accrue new information and it means that that central server that ensures that humans can share information is pretty much redundant because if the humans on Mars aren't allowed to develop and grow as people along the paths they want to take, how are they going to accrue new information to put onto this central server? So that's where I think a free working environment is brilliant because you can just, all these new ideas can be added to the server. It's, it's why we're in such a fortunate position on Earth at the moment. The vast majority of countries have the resources to allow their people to live in a free society, even if the governments are restricting their freedom. Can you imagine being on Mars? You wouldn't be free because you'd be constantly striving to survive, desperately trying to ensure Maslow's hierarchy of needs right at the bottom are met. You know, housing, food, am I hungry? Am I warm enough? Let me talk about some interesting ideas that I felt came up in the book. There's probably loads that I've missed or you want to add to, so please, comments below, send me an email, bookshook at yahoo.com. First one, unchecked desire. I love that theme of unchecked desire. Being a cause of so much grief, suffering and oppression, I certainly see this in our modern world. Rainey's comment that some companies, if not most, produce the idea of desire in order to sell the product that will sate that desire is so relevant today. So ultimately, a really thought-provoking and interesting novel. I think it could have been much shorter. I can't stand those star rating systems that get you to rate a novel between one star and five stars, but I'm going to rate it. Goes against my better judgment, and this is how. I know for a fact that most of the novels I read are very unlikely to be one star, absolute trash, or two stars, horrible, horrible. So I'm going to just go three stars, four stars, or five stars. Three stars, I didn't like it much. Four stars, I liked it. Five stars, I loved it. So, Vagabonds, I liked you, so I'm going to give you four stars. Would I recommend it to a friend? I would recommend it to someone who was into reading socio-political science fiction type novels. My friend Max, who studied political science, might love it. I'm going to lend it to him, see what he thinks of it. Would you recommend it to a friend if you read it? I'd be interested to know. Right, so ideas. Very interesting ideas in this book. All the way through it, there are quite a few continuing ideas in the second half and new ideas as well that came up. I really think it's a social commentary rather than sci-fi. There's not that much interesting science. In fact, the, the science that's in there is really boring and dull and I've heard it a million times. For example, Giel's design for solar-powered clothing. <laughs> Am I being snarky? <laughs> Here's a quote about the clothing from the novel. It's quite interesting and funny. Well, okay, interesting. Quote, most people think of clothing as a means of staying warm or mere decoration, feeling alienated and estranged from nature and space. 
but we all know that the spiritual goal of every person is to break through the bonds of conventional thinking, to constantly innovate. We made this armour for this very purpose. By turning sunlight into electricity, not only is it a suitable material for space suits and mining suits, but it brings about a novel conceptual framework. Our body doesn't have to hide from nature. It can embrace nature, appropriate nature. Interesting idea there. And the glass that can turn opaque is hardly new tech. And we've also got that idea of a shared experience. That's hardly new as well. The metaverse is doing that, isn't it? Remember when they went to the Tower of Babel, they met up, Eco and Luying. Now, what new ideas are there in this book then? How did it win the Hugo Award? Well, as if to directly respond to this thought, a few pages later than the clothing description, we do have the description in the creativity fair of an aircraft stripped back to its raw form. Have a listen to this. Quote, they plan to completely overhaul a small Martian shuttle fighter, removing all systems related to cargo, hauling, mining and war, reducing speed and altitude requirements to the bare minimum until the plane could get off the ground with the least amount of equipment. So the implied author here, I think, is keen to get back to basics in this book, to reawaken the human by stripping away the, the science. What do you think? So again, yeah, social commentary really, rather than science fiction, perhaps. Now, the idea of back to basics or a human-led science is an interesting one. The science group for the Creativity Fair want to look at nature in order to progress scientifically. Rainey says, quote, If you allow me a bit of digression, I think we've become too dependent on computer simulations. We no longer bother to observe. It's the opposite from the way things used to be done. Again, there is that desire to cast away science and rely on human observation in order to develop systems. We've also got that idea of light analogies. Luying asks why she feels close to some people and distant from others. And Rainey responds with, quote, A cloud is actually made of liquids. The droplets are far apart from the one another in the air, each moving independently. But because they're similar in scale, they refract light similarly. That light connects them and we see the whole constellation of droplets as one cloud. That's how it works, thought Luying. Yes, we're at the same scale and the light connects us. That's how it works. She'd finally discovered the source of their commonality. It's a rather beautiful quote, I think. Now, the housing system's an interesting one. You can only get a house if you're married. A single apartment is for when you're single. And that's why there's so few divorces. I'd never thought of how a housing system could manipulate society in such a way. And the, obviously we've got these two completely different systems of government on Mars and Earth, which Rainey articulates really nicely with this quote. Quote, in reality, there are only two systems in the world, the solid and the liquid. A solid system features stable structure in which every unit is fixed in its position. Between the atomic units, the bonds are strong. A liquid system, on the other hand, features freedom of movement and the units are relatively independent. Between them, there is no fixed bond and little strength. Lu Yong pondered this. Are you saying that there is no way to have freedom and attachment both? And Rainey responds with, there are many values that are mutually exclusive. The narrator says, Rainey understood that Mars was the very embodiment of the crystal. The city was as stable as a crystal lattice. Every family had a house and every house with its yard was similar in size. Houses were arranged in neat chains like periodic necklaces. Martians rarely moved. Children grew up in the houses of their parents until they got married. 
and they registered for their own houses elsewhere. A whole life was spent in two houses and people were as rooted as plants. The neighbourhood was the most important social structure, a child's whole world. Everyone they knew were the people who grew up with them and the people who, after their choice of atelier, accompanied them for the rest of their lives. While the city expanded as the population grew, each new residential district looked exactly the same as the rest of the city. The same neat chains of houses, the same peace and equality, each house could be decorated in thousands of variations, but all of them together belonged to the same whole. 20 million people were distributed evenly and there was no structural centre of the city. Stability was premised on fixed bonds. Liu Yang says, but didn't you speak of clouds? There's both freedom and connection. Rainey says, clouds, yes, but clouds require an external source of light and cannot last. Now those two deaths are interesting. Liu Yang witnesses the two sides of the same coin really. One is caused by the Martian system and the other is caused by the Terran system. The first death by a rigid structure that stifles freedom and the second by the constraints of capitalism. And this is how the death in Terran happened. Quote, besieged by angry shareholders, he finally couldn't take the strain anymore. With the news of his death, the bulletins automatically showed contextually relevant warnings that investors should be cautious with cutting edge research. It was possible to lose everything. Another interesting idea is racism. Anker thinks that Juan's critique of Terrans is terrible. To Anker, quote, there was no such thing as a base or worthless people, only craven and base individuals. Full stop. And as I mentioned previously, the idea of unchecked desire, I think is a really interesting and to me, probably the idea that I got most from this book, the idea that if you can make sure that your desires are checked, it can really help you in life. Now, remember the protester in Tehran, quote, we must fight against all extravagant desires and destroy dreams of luxury while the blood of purity still flows through our veins. They seem to be always speaking with exclamation points, says the narrator. Quote, we must protest, march, demonstrate. We must tear down those buildings and return to nature. We must shout our rage and let our voices be heard. These words seem to be really influenced by religion and religions that seek to check the unremitting passion in humans to desire things, whether that be wealth, popularity, beauty, luxurious goods. On a personal level, I do think freedom from desire is a very noble and probably valuable lesson to be learned. Although I know that it is a struggle. I struggle with it. Maybe you struggle with it too. And as Maslow stated in his Psychology of Needs, there are fundamental desires that must be fulfilled in order to operate as a human to survive. And these are biological requirements. So you need air, food, drink, shelter, etc. And then we've got these social requirements, safety, love, freedom from persecution. I could go on. But as you can see, freedom from desire is a difficult concept. We do desire things. That's why the word unchecked is such a useful word to add before desire. It forces you to think, okay, I desire that. Why do I desire that? Is it useful in my life? Or is it gonna lead me down a path which is best not taken? Anyway, what do you think? I, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on what you thought of the unchecked desire idea. The idea of systems like circuits was quite interesting with those replaceable parts, usually humans. It made me think of the word HR, actually, and I had a long chat with my wife about this. 
human resources seems like such a cold-hearted way of talking about people. It's the same thing though, you know, a resource, you place it in just like a circuit to achieve your ultimate goal in industry or production process. The housing officer speaks of it just here. Have, have a listen to this quote. It's actually really talking when they're with the housing officer. Quote, if you imagine each lab as an electronic component, resistor, capacitor, quantum transistor, or whatever, then so-called free association is just each component melding itself into the circuit, hoping to become a part of the next big circuit. And once the project is funded, all that's left is repetition and obedience. Do you know what benefits from a system like this? Only the aged who already have fame and accomplishments. Once they gain the power to design the next generation of social circuitry, they'll use their authority to force others to travel along paths they plan out. They have too much power. The problems you've identified aren't limited to administration, but touch upon the very philosophy of the functioning of society. If we're to start a movement, we can't be too timid. We must be direct and forceful, plunging into the heart of this world like a sharpened knife. No one spoke in the ensuing silence. This is the narrator. Sharnia squinted and gazed at Rudy thoughtfully. Sorin and Runge looked at each other. Runge spoke up first. I think the problem you're describing stems from the disease of great accomplishments dementia, an unreasoning obsession with doing great deeds. Very interesting. Slightly ageist as well, I think, in places, did you not think? Now, I mentioned great accomplishments dementia. It's a very interesting idea. Rainey says it's the desire to, quote, complete the self. You're searching for some meaning to lose yourself in, and many others are searching as well. They yearn for the self to become significant against such a distant vision. Without that yearning, no control or instigation can be effective. Without so many people wishing to meld into a circuit, it's impossible to build a circuit. People aren't all obsessed with doing great deeds, but great deeds do give the individual that sense of presence. Searching for some meaning... Yeah, it's got a very religious kind of feel to it, that. And also, I can sense the narrator, or the, the implied author, really feels that achievement is a, a, a really valuable thing. Purpose and achievement. Now, Glass. There's a little bit on Glass in the second half. There's a lovely quote here. Let me just read it to you. Quote, Glass was the most easily obtained resource on Mars. It was easy to mould and assemble and could quickly take shape with pressurised air. Destroyed glass structures were relatively easy to rebuild. Galliman's houses were not mere buildings but entire miniature enclosed ecosystems. The houses produced energy, regenerated air, circulated water, cultivated living organisms and broke down waste. It was like an acrobat carefully keeping many spinning plates in balance. In the heat of war, the Martians burrowed into the ground, and on the ruins of the old, they quickly blew up new homes like crystal bubbles. I love that idea of reflected knowledge, and this Tower of Babel, glass-like structure that reflects and synthesises all knowledge. That, to me, was such an interesting idea in the first half. Why wasn't it developed in the second half further? Second half dominated by conflict and disparity. I would have loved to have seen a more beautiful collaboration between the languages, the sciences, the arts, and Mars and the Terrans in the second half, not just right at the end. It would have been interesting to see a bit more of the Terran world as well, I think. Anyway, another idea that was prevalent throughout this was revolution. It's interesting that Anchor, a low ambivalent, I guess, about public demonstration, ends up being the most revolutionary character in the novel. 
by saving those two Terrans and sacrificing himself. Is that a comment by the author on the futility of public demonstration to articulate revolution? And that revolution can be achieved by one lone individual rather than a population? What do you think of that idea? I think that's a very interesting thing to think about. Why do you think the author made the revolutionary action a cause of just one lone individual rather than a population? It seems to be quite anti-democratic and leads me to think that the idea of a sole person, you know, a lone individual, may be a good thing. Am I stretching that a bit too far, do you think? Making assumptions about the underlying reasons that this revolution happened by a lone individual rather than a population, which would, I think, have indicated that the idea of a democratic system is favourable. If the revolution in this novel had, had worked with a whole group of people, would have that been anti-communist in any way, do you think? I, I'm interested what you might think of that. So comments below, email me, let me know. Those are just a few ideas. There must be a billion others. And if you're thinking, why didn't you mention this, Roger? Isn't this far more interesting and far more useful to talk about in your podcast or your YouTube video? Please let me know. Um, and we can have a conversation. Anyway, I'd love to hear your ideas. Perhaps we can share them in the next episode. So please write and let me know your thoughts. How Ying Fan. I don't know anything about her. There's not a huge amount about her on the web. So I had to go to Wikipedia and there wasn't a huge amount on Wikipedia. But what there was was quite interesting. So Hao Ying Fang was born in Tinhuan, I think that's how you pronounce it, on July the 27th, 1984. So that makes her 38. After high school, she studied, then worked at Xinhua University in the area of physics. After noticing the economic inequality of China, she studied economics in Xinhua University, obtained a doctoral degree in 2013 and worked as a researcher at China Development Research Foundation since then. In 2002, as a high school student, she won the first prize at the 4th National High School New Concept Writing Competition. In 2016, she won the Hugo Award for Best Novelette for her work Folding Beijing. She became the first Chinese woman to win a Hugo Award. What a great achievement. And Vagabonds was shortlisted for the 2021 Arthur C. Clarke Award as well. She is married and has a daughter. Hao Ying Fang, thank you very much for such an entertaining book. I really enjoyed reading it. So this brings me to the next book. Why have I chosen it? And what do I know of the author? Well, Pedro Paramo by Juan Rufo. 139 pages. Um, if you're reading alongside, I'm going to be reading up to page 72. Now, why did I choose it? I chose it because I've heard that it's a classic of Mexican literature and that it's scary, and I do like a horror. I don't know anything else about the book. I know nothing of Juan Narufo, apart from the fact that he was born in 1917, he lived in Mexico City and published the book when he was 38. I'm going to read the opening and give you my thoughts. I've never read it before. I came to Comala because I had been told that my father, a man named Pedro Paramo, lived there. 
It was my mother who told me, and I promised her that after she died, I would go to see him. I squeezed her hands as a sign I would do it. She was near death, and I would have promised her anything. Don't fail to go to see him, she had insisted. Some call him one thing, some another. I'm sure he will want to know you. At the time, all I could do was tell her I would do what she asked. And from promising so often, I kept repeating the promise even after I had pulled my hands free of her death grip. That's quite a shocking opening, isn't it? And he doesn't know his father. Never met him before, probably. I came to Cumberland because I'd been told that my father lived there. So he's never met his father before. Don't fail to go to see him, she had insisted. Anyway, I'm going to carry on. This is quite mind-blowing so far. So many things. Why haven't you seen your father? Anyway, still, earlier she had said to me, don't ask him for anything, just what's ours. What he should have given me but never did. Make him pay, son, for all those years he put us out of his mind. I will, mother. What should the father have given him? I want to find out. I never meant to keep my promise, but before I knew it, my head began to swim with dreams and my imagination took flight. Little by little, I began to build a world around a hope centred on the man called Pedro Paramo, the man who had been my mother's husband. Not my father. That was why I had come to Comala. Mother's husband, not my father. Oh my word, what a book. Um, that was just the first paragraph. I usually, I mean, there's so much, you know, there's so many interesting things in that. Look, I can't wait to read it. I hope you can read it alongside me. It's quite a short one. Hardly any pages. Join me. Do it. Pedro Paramo by Juan Rolfo. Look at that cover. I wonder where that is. If you know where that is, can you email me or write in the comments below? Anyway, thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Also, if you enjoyed this, I have a host of further videos on books I've read over the last two years. Please download and listen. I look forward to discussing the first half of Pedro Paramo by Juan Ralfo. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Interesting, Juan. He was in the previous novel, wasn't he? At the next episode of Bookshook, 139 pages. It's going to be the second Friday of January. That's going to be the 27th. So I'll see you on the second Friday of January. That's the 13th. See you then. Mm -hmm.